If you're looking for a clean, sober, professional, academic, well-researched, historically accurate, generally accurate, serious podcast on Southern folklore, ghosts, bizarre events, and unique people, this podcast is not for you. However, if you've decided you can live with that, then join us for The Strange South. Hi, Patrice. Hi, Marla. Hi, Courtney. Hi, Courtney. Hi, guys. Mm. We're drinking our drinks and looking at uh, Chaz in Seattle. <laughs> this, is our, this is our second Skype session with uh, Honey Jalapeno Margarita, right? Yeah. Didn't we just do this a couple weeks ago? We did. Mm. It was, it's delicious. It is. It's, it's worth it. so worth it. Mm. Do you drink margaritas by like turning your glass around so that you get some of the salt every time until it's gone? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes, I do. Yeah, I'm about a third of the way. Mm-hmm. Got a little much that time. I don't taste the jalapeno. Like I never know when they're going to be hot. Is it hot to you guys or is it just? It's a good flavor. It's not hot. Yeah, though. it's got a good flavor, but it's not hot. Mm-hmm. Mm. Well. What has happened since we spoke last? I honestly don't know. Like I said, I don't know. <laughs> Aliens Man. came and abducted my brain. Yeah. I just, I've just been on the computer. If I hit social media, it's just kind of like maybe during a bathroom break. I've totally got computer brains because I've been doing these projects and getting ready for summer school. So I've lived under a rock basically this whole week. I have no idea what's going on. I am unfortunately the opposite. I have been on social media more than is healthy for me, and I have realized that today. So I've taken a big break from news and social media just for today. I don't want to ignore, but I don't want there's I don't want to be consumed and feel like what's the point when I read all the negative comments of people that I shouldn't waste my brain power on. (laughs) You know, like why am I even reading that? It's pointless. It's because it, it's the fascination with how ugly people can be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's kind of the same thing as like the train wreck mentality, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, I will stop. say I have yet again done an informal experiment with my social media. And every time I post coronavirus updates for our state, which, by the way, have are skyrocketing. So that's not yeah. great news. I get five or six likes or, you know, responses on those. I post a picture of Cece and within 10 minutes I've gotten 50. Yeah. <laughs> so I know what I know what people want to see from me on social media. <laughs> Don't want my political views or my, fa- you know, the facts that I'm trying to present. They want to see Cece. So, hey, it makes me happy to show them. So. <laughs> Give them what they want. Give the people the kitten pictures. Yeah, yeah. Social media is like it's like it's a great way to keep up and everything, but it's also a shitty thing. And yeah, mm-hmm. I've been I've been a little sick of it lately too, because it's easy to get bogged down in. Yeah, no fun, no fun. I guess we should mention though we did get a uh, text message from a friend of ours talking about the Jacksonville Bigfoot sighting. Oh my oh, God! Yeah. Yes, we did. Yeah, in one of the local community groups, someone posted, has anybody else reported a Jacksonville Bigfoot sighting? And then the next person was just like a, you know, stock photo of a Bigfoot with a red background behind or something. I guess we, if we, you know, we should go investigate. But my first response was exactly the same as yours, which was, yeah, there's a bear. Yeah. (laughs) 
Well, it's kind of a nightmare. We were actually thinking about moving over there, and that's one of the first things we learned. It's extremely wooded. There's nothing back there, and bears have been sighted. So, yeah, there are bears over there. They had a cougar over there last year. Oh, Um, wow. And there are bears up where I live, too, right now. So, I was like, oh, I would like to say that it's because people aren't out as much and so the bears are coming out and filling the space that the people fill. but it ain't true around here no, that's true <laughs> people uh, are out just as much as they always just are. as much i decided to get my hair i let my hair grow out because i had no choice really <laughs> it was a bit and if because any of y'all coronavirus have seen, yes because coronavirus so if any of y'all have seen pictures of me or, or if you know me you know i generally have my head shaved on the sides and i let it you know it had to get long because coronavirus and and you're I was a like, responsible you know, maybe, adult yes i know i was not gonna go in and so i was like okay well maybe i'll just kind of style it so that it doesn't need to be you know tight shaved anymore i messaged patrice and i was like i feel bad about my hair because i lost the badassest part of me <laughs> I decided to style it like that and I was like I don't feel like myself anymore and and I kept on I kept on getting feedback that it was nice and it looked good and everything and I was just like I looked in the mirror yesterday though and I was just like this is a Karen cut and I can't I just can't do it I can't keep it like this I (laughs) I know this is not who I am and I should be confident that it's okay but I was like man that haircut means a thing and I was like I'm going back and shaving this shit off tomorrow I'm shaving it I was going to do it tonight after we had several margaritas I thought that'd be a great (laughs) idea just give me the clippers (laughs) oh my god I forgot did you not bring them <laughs> um, it's gotta, it's gotta get done because I, I just, I, it, and it's not even, it's not even, it, no, I'm not messing around with that. Joke. Well, I'm, I'm sorry, <laughs> it doesn't, it doesn't look like a Karen cut to me, but I don't think you. so either. I understand the feeling of this is not working and you're constantly <laughs> thinking about it and obsessing about it, and so yeah, shave, shave it so that you shave can, it. Have peace of mind. Yes, peace oh, of mind is critical. What you go buy some clicker clickers? clickers? You want some clickers? Clippers. I have drunk half of this already. Here we go. Um, well, let's see. I don't, what have I been doing? I've been, I've been, I've been working on a community group that's doing all kinds of shit around town and stirring the, the pot for everybody <laughs> all week, and it's been taking up a lot of my time. <laughs> Power to the people. I've been, I've been troublemaking. <laughs> Been a troublemaker. Yes, I'm oh, a troublemaker. That's it's awesome. Not like Confederate statues, but so I've been I've been busy with that shit. But last night, this is the story I started to tell you before we started rolling. Was I borrowed this um, slide projector screen from my parents who used to submit all their friends to slide projector shows in the 70s, and <laughs> and I swear to God, everything I borrow from my parents comes in the original box. I, oh, yeah. I'm not even joking about how like how very very organized they are, and so it comes in with the original logo on the side in the original box and everything. So I set it up, and Randy brought home a projector and hooked it up to the laptop because our local drive-in, I may have mentioned this, was doing Jaw was doing Jurassic Park and Jaws double feature this weekend. And I'm covered in mosquito bites already. Mm. And I just couldn't bear the idea of going out to the drive-in and sitting outside my car and getting covered in more mosquito bites. 
So I told the kids that we would watch those movies at home and do a big screen thing. So he got this awesome set of speakers. And we just, you could probably hear everything like three houses down from us <laughs> last night. But we watched Jurassic Park and then we watched Jaws. How'd that go? Jaws was bloodier than I even remembered it being. Mm-hmm. But Abby loved it. Coco left immediately. Like, she got through the first scene. I think she may have gotten through the second victim, which was the kid on the raft. Do you remember when the dog disappears and the little boy doesn't come back in? And I I can't remember if she even made it all the way through that one. But then she got up and she's like, this movie is boring. And just (laughs) marched upstairs, like, defiantly. Like... (laughs) I don't like this. And I was like, are you okay? Do you want to? She's like, no, I'm not scared. This movie is boring. And she I must agree with Coco. I have listened to you guys talking about Jaws and how you like Jaws. And I'm just going to be real with you. I've never cared for it that much. I don't know. I'm going to get hate mail on it. But it's not my favorite movie. And it's not scary. It's kind of dumb to me. The direction of it is really, it's funny because Abby actually brought this up because I'm pretty sure Abby is ADHD or she's, she's somewhere. She falls somewhere. She has unusual thinking patterns and she was sitting there watching the movie and she's like, they have to stop talking. Like, because so much of the first 30, 40 minutes of that movie is townspeople and mayors and sheriffs and everybody talking at the same time just straight on over each other. You really can't tell what's being said during a lot of scenes. And she looked like she was about to explode. <laughs> she was oh, no. like, I don't like this. She's like, this is why I don't like being in groups of people. I don't like this at all. Oh, and um, hard to like, focus on. Yeah, it's hard to focus. But there's a whole, that whole political, it's a huge like political movie up through the, you know, when they go out to hunt the shark and then it turns back into an action movie. But up until that point, it's kind of slow because it's all about the mayor saying, this is you the thing though. You have to tell Abby, what she said. Abby was watching the movie and that very first scene in and jaws we make too much money on fourth of july we can't close the beaches it wasn't a shark and abby turned around to me and she said wow that sounds like now right (laughs) such a smart girl yes 12 year old that does sound like now (laughs) children are so fucking intelligent (laughs) on so many different levels i know they pick up on that shit so much yeah let's take a quick pause for a second marlea I want you to check your settings on your mic and make sure. God, you've got so many around here. Look at all these. The Abbots. You see where I live. I mean, right beside me is like 10 apartments, 14 apartments probably. Somebody's got a hot spot over here. There is a, oh, bedroom speaker. That one's open. I have the (laughs) FBI surveillance van over here. (laughs) Is that what it says? Yeah. Did somebody name there's that? How mm-hmm. funny. And there is the other How one funny. that's over here that's cock extender. Yay! I remember. <laughs> Whose is that in that neighborhood? <laughs> I think it's <laughs> too. <laughs> You're going to have to mark that out there because I said his full name. Okay, <laughs> I don't know. You should put that in. I want people to know you have a Wi-Fi near you called cock extender. <laughs> Just like people still think I lose my mind when I say, just go to the cock liquor. What? <laughs> That's what you call game cock liquor. Why would you not? Why would, Why you, would not you not 
Why would you not take that opportunity? Liquor. Right. <laughs> Come Absolutely. on, people. <laughs> Come on, people. All right. Let's see. What else do we have? We've got. Oh, we're we back. have. <laughs> yes. Hey, we're back. I might sound a little better now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I guess we have been we've we've missed we've neglected one thing for a couple of weeks because we've all been scrambling to try and like make things work and you know getting back together and we haven't said a huge thank you to our patrons in forever ever oh my god and we want you to know how much we love you and how grateful we are for your support and um, support absolutely yes absolutely and if you weren't aware that we have a patreon we do have a patreon and you can find all the information on our website if you want to continue they get bonus episodes they don't always get them immediately but they always get them (laughs) they they do they always get them at some point and And i will say i feel like i have an entire conversation ready for today's after show like after talk so like sometimes sometimes we just kind of shoot the shit and tell stupid stories and you know whatever and sometimes we have like practically a whole other show right Or we may like tell a story that's kind of way out there, and then mm-hmm. the after talk is us telling you what we really think. Yes, or that extra bit of research that we did that maybe takes it somewhere else, and we go there. Mm-hmm. We go there. <laughs> we go. The after talk. That's we right. go there. <laughs> <laughs> and we also have a new promo uh, out. We have oh shit, Paul's. I can look up somebody's name. Oh my God! Why am I typing into I'm typing into Google promo swap? Why Why would it know? Google doesn't oh know that. Google doesn't know. So we have this promo swap that we did with the Psyched podcast, and we actually took the time after a year and a half of podcasting to do a somewhat formal in quarantine promo as well with some music that one of our fans actually <laughs> oh sorry i don't know if he's a fan or not <laughs> he's a fan now he's a fan now right <laughs> and i'm trying to find his name oh my god y'all i'm so sorry this is banjo guy right this is banjo guy and i posted him on the strange south called jared Kyle Jared. Yes, he did this cool little banjo rift on his French porch right when quarantine started. And I loved it. He's letting us use it. And I will put a link to all of his stuff. He's actually a uh, magician. It's really hard No to way. And he travels around. He's like a comet. See, I'm totally like unprepared promoting this guy. So anyway, I'll just put a link to him. <laughs> We love him. Yes, and you can find out yourself. And you could do your own research. (laughs) Damn it. We got enough shit to do. Oh my god. Y'all. That was just a crap show. You got You got this. Look. I need another drink already, man. Oh god. I think it's gonna be a three tequila night. Maybe. So before before I start my story, I forgot. I wanted to raise a glass to West Virginia on electing your first ever trans public official. Your first ever out trans public official. Wow. Rosemary Ketchum. 
Yep, Rosemary Ketchum was voted the new representative on the Wheeling City Council in West Virginia, and that is a first. So congratulations. Wow. Cheers. Way to go, mm-hmm. fucking West Virginia. Way to go, Way Rosemary to go. Ketchum. Yeah, because it's pride. So joy, joyous pride to joyous you all. Pride. This is not particularly a pride story, but mm-hmm. I wanted to make sure that we said that because it's important. Oh, absolutely. All right. So my story. Are you ready? Oh, I'm ready. My story is a Gullah Geechee folk story, sort of. Ooh. Ooh. It took a couple of forms, and one of them was the story of the flying Africans, and one of them was the story of the water walkers. So there was a long-told folk tale in coastal Georgia about a group of enslaved men who were whipped by their overseer really badly, and they decided at that moment that they were just done with this shit, so they stuck their hoe in the field, rose into the sky, sprouted wings, and flew back to Africa. There was another story that was very similar that was about a group of enslaved people who, when they saw for the first time the coastal shore off of St. Simon's Island in Georgia and knew that they were going to be enslaved there, they turned right around and walked across the water back home. Wow. And this was recorded in a couple of different places. It was, I mean, like I said, it was folklore. It was a story. But what was it called? The Federal Writers Project in the 1930s. They interviewed a couple of people who told different versions of those stories. Well, there's a deeper story under the folklore, and families have been passing it down in those communities since 1803 because there's an actual history behind what happened there. Story of the Igbo landing. So the Igbo people are a people from West Africa, which is in a part that's now Nigeria. And they're one of the largest ethnic groups in Africa. So traditional, like their traditional culture in like the 15th century and before even, They had a Republican basis of government, which was pretty unusual in their time and in their location. They had um, their own calendar. They had their own banking system. They had their own system. It was kind of like a judicial system, but it was they had their own system of mediation for complaints and issues against one another. They had extensive trade routes that went pretty much the entire length of what is now Nigeria. The Igbo believed that their land was a sacred land, and they believed that their spirit would return to their land when they died. So you probably know where this is going, since this is a strange South. The Igbo lost a million people to the European slave trade. They were kidnapped. They were bought by Portuguese, Dutch, British, and finally U.S. South. And And I mean, this is the course of three centuries. I mean, I think the slave trade in Africa started around the 1500s, maybe, mm-hmm. and went until the 1800s. So that's a really fucking long time. It is a long time. So in late in the year 1802, a group of Igbo men and women was delivered to a slave ship named the Wanderer at the Gulf of Guinea. And if you don't, it's funny. I It's not funny. I say that a lot. It's very rarely funny when I say that. I'm not really sure why I use that as my like conjunction statement. But I forget over time what I learned in grade school. Oh, or, and I, I don't know. There may be people who... I know, right? <laughs> don't we all? <laughs> Even the really important shit. Right. And 
there there may be people who didn't learn this stuff in grade school either but if you never studied in school the transatlantic slave trade or the middle passage or any of that stuff the trip across the atlantic took between four and six months right and it's very so people who it's very it's awful and mm-hmm. people who were enslaved i mean it'd be awful for just anybody anybody without technology and yes. comforts and luxuries to do a trip like that because of the amount of seasickness and disease and you know there are tons of things that can go wrong right well we were talking about people who were stripped shaved and shackled in rows before they even got on a boat in the belly of a boat that was too small for the number of people they were basically set up in pairs, chained to a, you know, a line. They're shackled around the wrists and ankles, generally not given much to eat or drink because they have to keep the load light for the travel and the number of people that they have. So they're just kind of given enough to, to just stay alive, basically. And they're kept in the dark. The openings, any openings in the hold where they're kept are generally filled up because they don't want water to get in. Like if if water comes across the deck, they don't want water to go down. And so that means they have no breathable air. (laughs) It's that the air doesn't circulate in this area. So it ends up being just rank and disease prone. Disease. I mean, just awful. Mm. They said you can't keep a candle lit in the hold of a ship like that because there's not enough good oxygen to keep it going. So, I mean, it's, it's really, really terrible. So like you said, people would get ill when they did, or if they refused to obey orders or showed signs of rebellion, they would just be tossed overboard. And so this, you're talking about taking a people, the Igbo people from a strong community, a strong culture, you know, an extremely intelligent background and throwing them into that, you know, away from their family, away from everybody else. So they go through six months of this shit. And then in May of 1803, the wanderer reaches Skidway Island, which is just south of Savannah, Georgia. All the people from the hold are taken off of the wanderer. And this is the first time they've seen the sun in probably close to six months. So they're dragged out from under the ship. They're put up to be poked and prodded and lined up in chains for these weird white people to come and look at them and people are pulling their lips apart and looking at their teeth and, you know, making them move certain ways to decide whether they want to use them for work or not. And it's Georgia state legislature actually banned the direct importation of Africans to its shores in 1798. So it was already illegal by the time, like on a, on top of being just like you know morally Way reprehensible, yeah. it, it was also illegal at this time. But the two Savannah planters who brokered with the slave trader who had brought these folks over, Thomas Spalding of um, Sepalo Island and John Cooper of Cannons Point on St. Simons, they were doing illegal trade. As if, like we said, as if it wasn't bad enough. So the two paid anywhere from $100 to $700 for each of these 75 Igbo people that they purchased together as as slaves for their plantations. So, you know, the Igbo people go through this poking and prodding after just being pulled off. And then the men who represent Cooper and Spalding gather these 75 people, chain them all together in a row, 
and then put them below decks in a schooner to take them to their plantations. And there are some of the stories say that there was a high official of the Igbo, like a, a chief, but I don't, I don't know that the chief was their system, but there was a high official of the Igbo among these 75 who, when they got below decks on the schooner, started to try and figure out a way out of this. And so there was definitely somebody who was a leader, was helping everybody to formulate a plan of escape. So they were close to the mouth of Dunbar Creek on St. Simon's Island, which so they were pretty close to their destination when the Ebo broke out from under decks and revolted against the crew. So uh, at least two of the crew members and the overseer of the Cooper's plantation were forced overboard and most likely drowned. And the boat was run aground by the Igbo people on the boat. So they're still all shackled together in a line. And they left the schooner together and they stepped, it's one of the stories that I listened to a man tell, a man who's from Nigeria, talked about how they would have stepped with their bare feet into the, the marshes of coastal Georgia for the first time and like about what that would have felt like and like the squish between their toes when they stepped off the boat. Mm-hmm. So they look out and they kind of feel like they've had this victory. And then they look out into the marshes off of Dunbar Creek and realize there are torches coming towards them. And there are white men yelling. And there are people who are waiting for them. And they're going to get them anyway. Mm. And so they all know, because again, they, they, the Igbo people had gained a reputation among British colonists for being a rebellious people. And they don't take easily to a life that isn't theirs right you know (laughs) yes so so, yes they looked at each other and basically communicated to each other these men do not deserve to profit from our labor and they all together chained and shackled in a line started walking into the water of dunbar creek and Dunbar Creek is not like a tiny creek. It's an SG, it's, it's off of a river. It's, it's deep water. Mm-hmm. water. And I'm not going to give you the words in their language because I don't think I'd do them justice. But what they mean in our language is the water spirit brought us here. The water spirit will carry us home. And so Cooper and Spaulding's thugs basically pointed guns at them, ordered them to stop, ran after them, yelled at them. But they kept on singing and they kept on walking into the water. And in this version, the most likely the truest version of the story that we have, the historical version, 13 of the Ibu drowned in the water of Dunbar Creek before the planter's men reached them to bodily drag the group out of the water. And those who lived were sent to the plantations and continued to tell this story to their children and their children's children for years and years and years and years. So the folklore of the water walkers and the folklore of the flying Africans pays tribute to that historical event by kind of switching the narrative to focus on the success of their defiance, you know, to let them live. Right. And so there are a couple people who've written about it that said that the mutiny by the Igbo people has been referred to as the first freedom march in the history of America. And I guess I should have given a trigger warning, but I didn't. 
the site of Ebo's Landing is now, it is designated a historic site uh, on St. Simon's Island in Georgia. You can visit it if you go with the right people because it's it's not there. I, I guess it's there. There are sections of the area that are privately owned and there there are only certain groups with certain tour guides who tell the story from the right perspective right. that are allowed to take people in to look at it or because it's holy ground. And so even though it's a historic site, there is no historic marker there. And that's been a big issue of contention also because it's they they built a fucking sewage disposal plant right next to it in 1940 but it's still that land is considered a holy sacred place and so in 2002 the St. Simon's African American Heritage Coalition organized an event to bless the spirits of the Igbo people who died there and to take the people take their spirits home basically and part of the reason why that happened I mean, mostly it was the history. There are also stories through that area on St. Simon's Island across Dunbar Creek where fishermen and crabbers won't cast their nets and won't cast their lines across that part of the creek. And people say that if you sit near the mouth of Dunbar Creek, you can hear chains rattling, you can hear bare feet slapping on the water, and you can hear voices chanting, the water spirit will take us home. Wow. So, I just I got was really surprised. I know, right? <laughs> I was I was really surprised I didn't know this story very well. It popped up on my radar a while ago, but I didn't look deeply into it. And the reason I'm surprised is because it's been in a lot of places. So this has showed up in literature. It's showed up in popular culture, though it's not always referenced as Ebo Landing. Toni Morrison's whole book, Song of Solomon, is built on the myth of the flying African that came from this Ebo Landing story. And one of the histories that I looked at said basically that this was just an oral history until I think she said the 1980s when, you know, other researchers started looking into it and proving stories that the families had been telling for, you know, 200 years that this really happened, that we can look at the, you know, we can look at the ship's registers and we can we can see that this was an actual event. But they told this story in Roots, Alex Haley's Roots and the the Beyonce video, Love Drought, that came out in 2017, it's a video, it's really short, the song's really short, but it's the one where she and a bunch of other women who are dressed in white with like black crosses across their fronts walk into the water, like a marshland mm-hmm. water, and stand there with their arms raised up to the sky. That's drawn from imagery from Eba Landing. And it's also drawn from the imagery that was used, like the aesthetic that was used in this 1991 movie called Daughters of the Dust, which is a whole film about a family of Gullah Geechee women who live on St. Simon's Island and who were direct descendants of the Igbo people that were brought on the wanderer ship. So I can give you links to some really good storytellers who who tell these stories in different ways, better ways than I can. But I thought that was, I thought that was good and fascinating and really cool. And I was glad that I knew it. So you had Gullah Geechee stories too. I know you were the one who introduced us to that culture. Well, I mean, it's so prevalent. I mean, we have appropriated it so much. It is Mm -hmm. the South that Mm -hmm. we live in come from, you know, the Gullah Geechee people and the food that we eat for sure. Oh, man, that was awesome. I'm definitely going to have to like look that up and, and study some more on that. It's good. Well, thank you. 
That's my you. short story for this week. That was so good. <laughs> we're back. And we're back. So this week I thought I'd give Arkansas a little love because we hadn't done anything on Arkansas in a while. And one, it was like, you know, there's a billion sites out there, like the top craziest things about Arkansas. Or, yeah. You know, you just go down the hole and I start reading all the comments because, you know, it's good to have those articles, but it's really, you, you read it for the comments because that's where, like, the true craziness happens. Mm -hmm. And there is something that happened in Arkansas in the 70s and 80s. And even 90s, I mean, it, it went on f for 40 years, and I, it never hit my radar. And it was pretty big fucking news. And this just shows you how out of touch with anything that was going on in the news that I was during college and before college. You know, I never watched the news. I never, you know, was aware of anything outside of my circle at the time. And that shows you how far up my own ass I was. That's why I feel like I didn't do anything with news or politics or anything until until nine eleven. Like that was the that yeah. was the thing. Yeah, and yeah, I, that, agree. I was just like, fuck it. Yeah, absolutely. Because yeah, and it, it was there's there was so much shit. Ha yeah. Anyway, I, I agree. That is a good kind of pivot point, I think, for a lot of us waking us up. But so. I want to talk about this because I saw this documentary advertised last year and it's called The Ministry of Evil. And oh. I want to talk about Tony and Susan Alamo. Are though Al Alamo? It's it's like the Alamo, <laughs> right? But it's okay. Alamo. Alamo is how they pronounce it. Which oh, okay. Really like what the fuck? It's Alamo. <laughs> Just say Alamo. But everybody, even in the document, it says Alamo. It's all about, Alamo. it's all about like where the emphasis is. Alamo. But it's spelled fucking Alamo, right? Sounds like Alamo. But this is like this huge, did y'all see like the documentary advertisement for Ministry of Evil? Oh no, God. it sounds like Harry Potter. I was going to say, it sounds like a Marvel movie. Oh. <laughs> Harry so Potter. I was like, okay, you know, when I was looking at that, I just, first of all, I looked at the Wikipedia because somebody had mentioned that like, yeah, their commune was out, you know, located near me. And they were talking about, you know, this guy, Tony and all this trouble he got into with the law. And so I looked them up and it's like, holy fucking shit. So this story is about Tony and Susan Alamo. And before they were Alamo, Tony was born in 1934 as Bernie Lazar Hoffman. And Susan Alamo was born Edith Opal Horn. So oh, I understand why they changed. Yeah, well, I'm pretty sure that wasn't like their first name change, if you get where I'm going. So mm -hmm. Tony, born in 34, was, you know, he was in Hollywood. He wanted to be like, he's always wanted to be a celebrity. He always wanted to be like the center of attention. He wanted to be a pop singer. He was a pop singer, supposedly. He was also known by the name Mark Kaufman and Marcus Abad. And he lied so much about his background. Nobody really knows like 
the early days of Tony Alamo. But he, in one of the stories from one of his adopted children in the documentary, said, like, I never, he's like, every time we talked about, like, his background or, you know, when he was growing up, it was always a different story. So he didn't know what the truth was. And he said at one point he was in the music business and that he was a uh, producer and that he actually, like, promoted the Beatles, which the guy was like, he's so full of shit. (laughs) But, I mean, that's the kind of gall that this guy had back in the 60s. Susan Alamo was born 1925. She grew up in Alma, Arkansas. Fucking hated it. She was married twice. She had a daughter. She took her daughter and went to Hollywood in an attempt to be an actress. And at this time, her daughter says that she was what they called a beat girl, which I didn't look this up, but it's basically a woman or a girl who would go into a bar and order a drink from the bartender, but the drink was iced tea and they served it in a cocktail glass. And then a man would come in and talk her up and buy her drink and pay it uh, as it was like alcohol instead of iced tea. And then she and the bartender would like take the money and split it or however however that went. So it was a con. So she was working this con at these bars in order to make money. And she had, in the documentary, her, her daughter is very like prevalent telling their story. She would, you know, she was a fantastic con artist. Like that was her knack. That was her thing in life is that she figured out that she could talk to anybody and con anybody out of anything. And what happened was she started doing this con called doing a church. And what she would do is she she would get a preacher or somebody to play a preacher. And they would, like, do this whole sermon and get people to donate money. But it wasn't Uh really a church. They were just taking the donation money. So that was doing a church. That's bad. But she was really, really good at it. And, you know, being from Arkansas and growing up, she knew her Bible. She knew, you know, she was very convincing. And she was, like, one of those very charismatic, but you don't cross her kind of personalities. Very smart, able to talk her way out of anything. And, you know, was doing this sort of con when she met Tony. And they met each other in a bar, and she always presented herself like, like wore the best clothes, always had her hair done perfect, nails always painted and done, jewelry, makeup, like just like the perfect picture of a 60s, like somebody with money. So she always presented herself like having money. Well, Tony was kind of doing the same thing. So when they met up in this bar, the other person thought that they were going to con each other <laughs> in order to pay for the dinner. They couldn't even like or pay for the beer. They couldn't they didn't even have enough money between the two of them to pay for their beer because they thought they were conning the other person. So <laughs> it, it was obviously, you know, they recognized each other and they were I don't 
know if they were married. They may have been, I think they were married at the time. They divorced their spouses and then they got married to each other in Las Vegas in 1966. And that's when they legally changed their names to Tony Alamo and Susan Alamo. But it's spelled fucking Alamo. <laughs> so they're in California in the 60s. And of course, it's very much hippies and summer of love and Charles Manson and family and you know the the krishnas and and all of just the crazy stuff that was going on during the late 60s at that time and so you know susan and tony got together susan was very much you know on this church racket she was the church she was like working the church angle and now she was married to tony and susan's daughter at the time she said you know tony was extra baggage at the time but she needed a front man because it was the 60s and it was hard to do anything without having a man to like sign for things and to do stuff like that so she found tony and they started you know working on this con and, but, of course, they didn't say it was a con, obviously. And it was the perfect time, again, for fucking cults. And mm -hmm. so what they started to do is they started... Susan started preaching the gospel to the young people on the street of California and Los Angeles. And they started this foundation called the um, Alamo Christian Foundation in Hollywood there, and they aimed at the hippie generation. And they got the young people that they met, they would preach the word of God, and they like, you know, again, being charismatic people, you know, got all of these, you know, young, impressionable teenagers and young adults to like follow them and to come into the church and be part of their church. And when they became part of this church, the Alamo, sorry, Alamo Christian <laughs> Foundation, they the young people had to give up all their worldly possessions to the church. Of course. And then they had to turn around and start evangelizing on the street to convert more people to this church. So they and could give up their money to the church so they could give yeah. but they were guaranteed through susan and tony that they would be looked after that they would get into heaven that you know they would have meals and a place to stay and so this this grew and again if you watch her when she's talking she's one of those people that is just you cannot tell her no or you cannot, you know, con it's like she has an answer for everything. And so she was, you know, she had an answer for everything. And so she, they started gathering all these younger people into this foundation, into their church. And they would pass out pieces of paper to others. And it would say, repent or perish. And, you know, so as soon as they got more and more people... They had like, they had like a three bedroom house there in Hollywood that was housing. There was literally 200 people were staying in that house. Yeah. And so, I mean, this is how fast and how big that they got. And 
you know, as soon as they started getting this mass population in this residential home, the police took notice because mm-hmm. there was problems with, like, I mean, there's just problems when you have that many people enclosed, you know, as far as sanitation, with just everything, noise, all the things uh, that was going wrong. And so what they ended up, you know, the police kept harassing and kept harassing them. So what they ended up doing is they moved up North California, kind of in the area where Charles Manson had his commune and whatnot. And they, they're like, God wants you to pick cotton and grapes and be field workers and work a wage and then give it back to the church so that the church can provide for you. So they started telling, you know, the young kids to like do, and they were very happy. You've got to watch this this documentary because a lot of the members that joined the first initial church talk about, you know, how, you know, they felt wanted, they felt needed. They constantly preached the gospel to them, which is basically you work for God, you work for me, which is like working for God. So by working and giving your money, you are showing how much you love God and anything not working was lazy and lazy people go to hell. And it was very oh much. Oh my God, that's not very hippie. It was, it was wow. very much, but it, it was something it's that. not they, far off of a lot of religions though. Exactly. <laughs> I'm not, I mean. <laughs> no, no. And you're right. And, and this really shows and we can talk about this in the after show too, but it was it was very much they used hell and damnation as like the consequence of not participating. Yep. But they didn't really like they didn't really have to talk them into it. They wanted to give. They wanted to be accepted. They wanted the approval of Susan and Tony, who were speaking, who God was speaking through, in you know, in this community. So they kept getting all their paychecks. And, of course, it was never good enough. And so it's like they were constantly trying to please Susan and Tony. And Tony hated women, like, from the get-go. And that's, like, one of the things that Susan said early on that she told her daughter is, like, he did not like women. And Susan had a thing for, I mean, she always got what she wanted. You know, she was always dressed to the nines and... You know, everything that she wanted, basically, she got. And she would tell women there on the commune who were mothers, because they'd bring their children in, and, you know, it started becoming families, and the community started having kids together. And they were telling mothers in this North California um, community that they weren't being good enough, they weren't doing good enough, your children are crying because you're not a good mother, you're a lazy mother. One of the mothers said that where they were living, there was not enough fresh water and they wouldn't let them, like they didn't have disposable diapers, they had cloth diapers. And so they had a really hard time keeping the diapers clean because there was not enough available women, I mean, not available water and the diapers would get maggots in them (gasps) from not being able to change them. And then what would happen is Susan would see this and she would say, well, you know, you're an unworthy mother. You're lazy. You need to do better by God because, you know, your children's diapers have maggots in them. So this is kind of the approach 
that they would take with you know their people they you know it is but it was it was like relentless relentless brainwashing they had like a tv show they had you know kind of the an evangelical tv show that you would think of like tammy faye baker kind of style you know because they were both wanting to be entertainers basically and she was a good talker and she could like just sit there and preach and you were just you know you would buy into it you know everything that she said and so you know she also used that she had cancer and that god cured her of cancer and that you need to you know she was constantly suffering so you needed to work harder whatever you were doing in order to please god so that god would cure her and you know she even like at one point she had tuberculosis or she you know she always had these stories of how she was ill and that you needed to pray for her and you needed to work harder and you needed to do right by god and but it was all a racket obviously and her daughter who had been with her through all these cons knew it you know knew what her mother was doing and she was living there in the commune and one of the things that started to happen is that susan says you cannot let your children you cannot you have to discipline your children you cannot let them you know go into the fires of hell basically you cannot let them misbehave and if they get too big to beat then you have to slap them in the face so she started this mentality of beating the children for their own good so that they wouldn't go into hell it said so it was your duty to beat your children so that they would not go to hell basically. And once this started mm. happening and once she started convincing the members that they needed to beat their children, her daughter who had children of her own was like, I needed to get the fuck out of there because I didn't want her touching my kids because of some of the things that she had saw. And so she went in and she told her mother, she's like, look, I'm out. And her mom was like, Susan says, you know too much, you cannot leave. And mm. so she remembers, she, mm. she ran from her mom through like the house that they were in and she went to her room and immediately men broke into her room and her mother was right behind her and they beat the shit out of her and they took her kids. Oh my God. So, and really the worst thing that a lot of the members said that you could do was be excommunicated basically and she would use she's like if you wanted out they would use your kids against you and they would like move the kids around to different families and stuff so there's just a lot of really fucked up just the beginning of all the uh. fucked up things that were happening but if you listen to the people talk it's just, I mean, it's the typical cult thing. It's like they were totally brainwashed. They totally blamed themselves for all the bad things that were happening. It was totally my fault that, yeah. you know, you know, even the kids at the time and, and the kids that were growing up, there was like at one time, there was like a cluster of 24 kids and they were about our age now. I mean, that's kind of like the age range, like in the 70s coming up. And, you know, hearing them talk, you know, they were like, of course, we thought it was our fault and we deserved it and we just took it kind of thing. 
So I can't remember how the daughter, the daughter eventually gets out and she gets out with her kids. And I don't remember the story. Again, there's several stories in there. You really got to watch the documentary to hear. So by 1976, with they had like increasing pressure from like the government because they were a church, but then they had all this money and the police were harassing them and uh labor department was harassing them and because you're supposed to pay your employees right and so 1976 they relocated the church back to alma arkansas which is where susan grew up and they about that time they had several hundred hundred members they started establishing businesses there. So they had printing facilities, they had a school, they had a tabernacle. They operated a drug rehabilitation facility. They had, you know, a freight company. They had a restaurant, they had a service station, they had a grocery store, and they were operating all of these businesses under a church, no tax you know, mm. nonprofit, you know, so they were profiting. Susan and Tony were profiting off of their, their preaching, but having all of their members run these different businesses that they started to open up. And on top of that, not paying their employees, but their employees were actually paying them. Oh, my God. So it was like this huge, just unbelievable thing that was happening. And of course, you know, even being in, you know, middle of Arkansas, the Labor Department had beasts with them. You know, the IRS was kind of like picking up on them and had followed them, you know, keeping an eye on what was going on. And one of the things that they would do is they would get country music stars to come and perform at their Alamos restaurants that they had. So they had a restaurant right there on I-40 in Arkansas. And I want to think that I have been through that way on I-40 and saw this restaurant. I'm not 100% sure. It looked really familiar. But they had fucking Dolly Parton oh like, my come God. through and like perform. And they got into this business of selling like bedazzled jean jackets that were airbrushed and stuff like like the jacket that michael jackson is wearing in his is it thriller or one of his album covers was like made from them so they were selling really? these like high-end custom jackets to these you know celebrities and having them basically made and by the children which was basically sweatshop labor to like Shit. set all the rhinestones i mean they're beautiful there are pieces of art that these children in arkansas did and but it was like it was a big thing and nobody really knew the story like so they had dolly parton here at the restaurant and tony actually bragged he's like when she came and performed at his restaurant they would make five hundred thousand a day wow. in money and he says that like in that time and that was like 1970s like 1980 or, or whatever today that'd be like a hundred and seventy five thousand dollars a day yeah. it's, it's how much money that would be and of course oh, wow. 
And of course, none of the employees got it. It all went into Susan and Tony's pocket. Oh, um, yeah. Yeah. So, and of course, everything was tax-free. They weren't paying anything because it's still under the church. They estimated that in 1977, Tony had made off, Tony and Susan, because really Susan was the brain of, of this whole operation, and Tony was just kind of like the follow-up. But Susan and Tony made about $19 million in wages from their employees in wow. 1977. And I didn't look up how much that was. That's like $4 million trillion today. <laughs> so much. So Shit. it was just, it was just really, it was just really fucked up. And the children... They were interviewing the children who had grown up who are about our age now. And they were talking about all, like, the really fucked up things that started happening. Because that's kind of when things changed. When they started abusing the children, it was kind of a turn instead of just, you know, taking the money yeah. and doing things. It's like the abuse of the children really turned a lot of people. Although the people that were in the um organization and i don't know how this happened some of them didn't know that they were beating the children it was like only the family that had children knew that the children were beaten because obviously they were told by tony to beat their children so that they wouldn't go to hell and it really obviously it did this psychological damage on the children because they were told all these you know fucked up things about how hell is seven times hotter than the sun and they were always moments away from hell and they just used the bible any way that they could to terrorize these children and then it's their fault like that's and it's the their fault right it's Your their fault. fault do not question anything follow you know don't even look funny at them kind of kind of deal of course the church expanded they were constantly getting new people into their congregation they started establishing churches in nashville chicago brooklyn and miami beach in the oh 1920 i mean 1980s you know the arkansas people living there you know gossiped and you know rumors were always abound because again they were kind of close-knit and tight they never talked about you know what happened about and you know susan and tony were their gods basically and but they started to have like a pr problem with the people in the area because they had like a 200 plus acre uh commune and they had these dormitories and they had all these businesses and everything was about god so they created this kind of propaganda book this foundation book to show the neighbors that they weren't all bad. And it was basically like taking pictures of children playing and being happy and showing the classrooms and the pig farm there and all the things. And one of the children was saying, yeah, the pig farm is, or, or one of the members there says, yeah, the pig farm is where you went when you were punished, basically. It's like if you did something wrong, you had to go work the pig farm. And they did a new program on television. They were on TV. They played the Grand Ole Opera. Oh, my God. And so, you know, they were everywhere. They were like celebrities. They wanted to be celebrities. And one of the ironic things in the early 80s, Susan Alamo actually got cancer. She actually oh. got breast cancer. And they like went in to do surgery and the guy said that they opened her up and it metastasized so much that they just basically closed her back up because <gasps> there was nothing that they could do 
And so she actually ended up dying in 1982. So she really ran everything. While, you know, Tony was good at business, Tony was, you know, a good front man, she really was the driving force for the church. And so now that she has died, Tony is trying to reevaluate, like, what, he's, what is he going to do to keep his members and to keep them in line and to keep them believing so that they can pay his luxurious lifestyle, basically. So he told them that he believed that she would rise from the dead. And oh, so he had her embalmed. And oh, kept oh my God! With him for like six months, and uh, they had him in a mausoleum. What? And they were like, they were like, you need to pray, you know, to bring her back. If you don't have enough faith, she's not coming back, and it's your fault, basically. <laughs> and so everybody, well, you know, oh. the daughter heard about her mom die, and of course she was livid because Tony wouldn't bury her. And, you know, even though she did all these horrendous things and, she, you know, her daughter, you know, cut ties with the community and everybody, you know, it was still her mom and she was still like really upset about that. But he, you know, was, she was basically sure Tony was going to run everything into the ground after Susan had died. So this is where it turns from like the pre-Susan Tony, who was kind of like in the shadow ran the businesses, not the front guy, not the smart person of the two, where he became kind of a post-Susan Tony, and things really got bad. Oh, my God. So about at this time, he was probably worth $50 million, and nothing was in his name, but, of course, he had access to all the money. The abuse that was started by Susan really ramped up after her death. And he basically became like this rich psycho. And, you know, I think there was like unsurety at the beginning of how he was going, if people were going to follow him like they did Susan. And so I think he tested a couple, you know, of people in their congregation to see if they would do what he wanted them to do. And as soon as they did, he was like, yeah, it's fucking on. So it wasn't like too long after Susan had died that he would just leave Arkansas and nobody would know where he, he was. And he was actually over in LA and he was dating this fashion designer. And she, her name is like Birgitta, Gillenhammer, she was uh, Swedish, I think. And he, you know, he started courting her, basically. And he, they, she said they didn't even kiss until they got married. But she looks exactly like Susan. So Ew. they're what? thinking that, Sus that he was wanting, like, maybe to come up with saying that Susan was reincarnated and bring oh. this lady into the mix. But... The fashion designer, Brigida, Brigida, she didn't believe in God, really. Or she, she was like, she was not religious. She was not into all of this. And it really became more about his abundant need for sex. So <laughs> she said that they oh, had to wow. have sex three times a day. 
And oh. if they did not have sex three times a day, he said even if it was two, he would pray to God and ask him what he wanted, like what God wanted him to do for that one time that they didn't have sex that day. And it ended up that he would usually beat her. And so it became like extremely abusive. And, you know, she finally left. I hope so. When it got, yeah. But, you know, she's, again, she's standing on because, I mean, he was basically funding her fashion. I was like, well, I feel like she might have been more, well, independent, financially independent. No, she was basically, yeah. And then the abuse like started to get worse and worse. And so she was like, he's fucking crazy. And she left. And again, they were like really, you know, one of the things that she brought was the denim jackets, you know, the prevalence of the denim jackets being sold everywhere. And this is what had the kids in the sweatshops doing the rhinestones for them. And one of the things that Tony, because about this time, of course, the Department of Labor, not only with child labor, which they didn't even know anything about the child labor, but like not paying their taxes and not having um, their employees make any money, you know, the government was starting to get all up in their business. And so he started preaching, or they pretty much always preached that the government was the devil, the Department of Labor was the devil. They are trying to come in, and if they caught any of them, they would immediately kill them. So they started ingrating this fear about authority into their followers and made them highly distrustful and fearful of any kind of law enforcement. And about this time in the 80s, they were saying, you are not running a church. You have several multi-million dollar businesses going on here. Just because you pray before and after you start working does not make you a church. And it also, yeah, so so what they did is they became a nonprofit then. And so after they became a nonprofit and they tried to get away with that, of course, the only person that it was profiting was Tony. And so the government came in, the RS came in and said, look, a nonprofit cannot be just profiting. Yeah, that's not how it works. So the IRS revoked his status as a nonprofit and said that he owed $7.9 million in taxes. But nothing was in his name. And again, so he's having like all these, these people coming at him from the law enforcement and he's still preaching to his followers and he starts now to preach Old Testament. Because really Tony didn't know anything about the Bible until Susan came along. So Susan taught him about the Bible. And Tony, while he's cunning and he's, you know, slick as shit, he's really not that smart. He just got incredibly lucky. And so he starts reading the Old Testament and starts preaching about the Old Testament and he starts, you know, he starts increasing the beatings of the children. He starts, you know, trying to group families that had young children into the commune and he starts looking at like the younger girls and he starts preaching about polygamy And he starts preaching about... I knew this was coming. (laughs) Well, yeah. I mean, he starts preaching about, you know, how 
back in the day and then through I mean y'all know this like God is working through me and the Old Testament says and therefore it's right by God kind of shit 1987, there are some things that happened that kind of catch up with some of the followers. Like I told you, one of the followers didn't know that the kids were actually being beaten until he had a kid. And when he heard and saw one of the kids being beaten, he was like, "I'm the." he got the fuck out of there. He was trying to get his kids and his wife out of there. And of course, his wife turned on him. And he actually, like, literally, it, the way he was describing it, it reminded me of the scenes of Handmaid's Tale when she's oh. trying to escape and the guards are coming after him and shooting at them. So this was, like, kind of the thing in Arkansas that was happening when he left because he had to sneak out because he started questioning stuff. And you didn't question Tony. You didn't question anything. If you did, then you were going to hell and there's something wrong with you and... And you would be punished for it. And if you left the commune for whatever reason, sneaking out, your family was punished for, for it. Mm-hmm. So what happened when this guy left, his son was severely punished for his dead leaving. And he made all the kids watch. Tony wasn't present there, but he was on speakerphone and he was instructing the adults as far as, how, you know, how to paddle, what to do to punish this kid. And this was kind of the breaking point and the turning point for the downfall of Tony's little sick world here. And, of course, it horrified all the kids. A lot of the kids that were present there were talking about, like, how blood was just pooling in this, like, 10-year-old boy's pants and how, like, they had maybe... Five adults beating the shit out of him with like a wooden paddle. It was, it's really, it's really hard to stomach some of this stuff that they were talking about it. So after these two brothers ran away from the commune, they immediately went to the law and they like gave it up. They're like, look, this guy is beating, he's these kids, and you know, and there's a lot of abuse going on. So he's, he was trying to get his kid out of that situation. And Tony took his family and moved them like 12,000 miles away or 1,200 miles away, 1,200 miles away, like to California. (laughs) (laughs) Asia, but no, moved him, you know, so that he couldn't be located. And then they brought up these charges of child abuse. And so Tony ran basically, but the whole time that he was on the road and that the law, you know, couldn't catch up with him, he would constantly make these tapes, delivering his sermons, telling people what to do about the businesses, ordering beatings to the kids. And because he was, during this time, he was losing his freedom, being a fugitive, and he was also starting to lose his income. So things were really starting to unravel. He got much more aggressive and the beatings increased and his his push to, you know, show them that the police and the government would kill them if they even, like, stepped outside the commune. You know, if you got on a bus, the police are going to kill you. If you got on a plane, they're going to drag you off the plane and kill you. So he was definitely, you know, not only the beatings were kind of a abusive torture fear mechanism, but, you know, Waco had happened. And so he was like, you know, look what they did to Waco. And those people were peaceful, blah, 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 right? So there's just so much 
there was just so much stuff going on and he's he was saying he'd like to say he's like you have to smite the simple so that the wise will be aware and that's kind of how he treated these people just physically and mentally abused them so in the 90s the millers who was the guy that got away and that was like went to the cops and was trying to get his son back and that made tony flee he he did a civil lawsuit against them and of course tony didn't show up and so tony was found liable for defrauding emotional tormenting and physically abusing abusing the millers and they won the suit and for like eight one point eight million dollars to be paid in full and that also lets them raid the commune because Tony didn't show up. There was no way for them to, it's like, once you're awarded that money, then the government goes after the person and liquidates their assets in order to pay that money. And so about this time, of course, because Tony had all these running ins with the IRS and he's like, he owes like $1.7 million. I'm sure he owes a lot more of that and back taxes and stuff. They were talking with, you know, the people going after him. They're like, look, you know, you're not going to get much. Tony's not going to pay much. You know, you may get three years or oh, six months. You may get six months for child abuse in jail. And then he's out. And then, you that's know. it? Yeah. I think that's what that's they said shitty. at the time. And so this like, let us get it on this bigger charge. And so that's when the IRS came in. They raided the compound in 1991. There was like, at the time, 300 people on the compound. Tony had a heads up about their fisting to be raided. So he called the compound because he was still on the run and said, y'all just need to like grab, you know, grab your kids and just run. So as soon as they hit the compound, everybody was like running through the woods and they all uh, split up. Also, Tony had the construction workers there grab Susan's body from her grave there on oh the campong and take it with them. So her, her body disappeared. Holy shit. <laughs> so they confiscated <laughs> all of this stuff. That's the, all the followers went their separate ways, you know, lived in different uh, states for a while while Tony was on the run they seized everything, the, the business from the compound. Tony had a habit, again, because he is a fucking narcissistic pig, would call the reporters just to tell, you know, talk to them and tell them kind of his side, side of the story. And he called one reporter and was saying, like, you know, this judge that convicted me, he's like, God is going to be the judge of him and God's going to find him guilty and then he will be hanged by the neck until dead. So he told this reporter that. So the next day in the paper, a uh, big headline comes out, judge threatened. So he basically threatened a federal judge. And so after that happened, the U.S. Marshals came in and they went like really hard looking for him. Y'all remember Current Affair? Back in the like, yeah. 90s Maury, and what, stuff. Did, that was Maury Povich before it was the Maury Povich show. He was the current, was affair, the current affair. Yeah, so they all, you know, some of the 
followers who left and got out went on there. The Millers went on there talking about, you know, Tony Alamo and, and like all the bad things that had happened. And they they actually found it was very much, you know, you know the HBO, the wire, you know, mm -hmm. finding people on their cell phones and listening to cell phones. So they they had a wiretap on the cell phone and they triangulated where he was and he was actually living down in Tampa, Florida. So in 91, he like, Tony walked out of the place that he was living and picked up a paper and they got him. And he was like, <laughs> one of the funny things in the documentary, they said, <laughs> Tony asked like, how did you find me? And the marshal was like, it was divine intervention. God <laughs> told us where you were and now work is done. <laughs> so he went to court for child abuse and tax evasion and fucking got acquitted. What? So one of the people that was a juror, one, one of the, I don't know if it was a lawyer or something, overheard one of the jurors say that they didn't want to encroach upon his freedom of religion or his First what Amendment right. What the fuck? Exactly. So not only was he acquitted, he, he was still like, wanted for some other stuff and he was released on bond and one of the guys like you know that's the, the stupidest shit ever it's like who releases somebody like this on bond he goes and he regroups he tells all of his followers to come back together they get new followers they open up a new church oh my god and this time he starts preaching the end times ministry kind of stuff oh yeah and so it's the end times and they're coming and evil's everywhere and Old Testament and the polygamy. This is where the, really the polygamy comes in and he starts vetting young girls, 15 and 16 young girls to be his wife, his wives and, you know, starts, you know, convincing you know, that this is what God wanted. This is like what all the old people in the Old Testaments did. This is, you know, this is just how it was going to go. So, again, he's kind of, you know, increasing in power. He's now being persecuted as the prophet. So this is mm -hmm. the angle, the end times angle, you know, that he's, he's uh, selling everybody. Most people come back, uh, and he's basically just, the he's like, really, if you have children, those are the people that I want coming back. And like I said, he was grooming the children, oh. the young girls, to be wives. They moved to Folk, folk, folk Arkansas. The, <gasps> Wait, like where the monster is? The monster is. How, how do you say that? Falk. Falk, yeah, Falk. They moved to Falk, Arkansas. Oh my God, they have a monster and a crazy ass cult. Yes, and he started marrying these younger girls. And he uses a passage in the Bible uh, or something where it's basically as soon as they hit puberty, that's when they were ready to be married. Oh, and yeah. so when he was in prison for that little bit for the child abuse, he did get sent to prison for child abuse. But like I said, it was like six months or whatever. Or maybe it was tax evasion. Oh, I'm sorry. I totally missed out another trial. In 1993, he goes to trial in Memphis for tax evasion and gets six years. So mm -hmm. while he was in there, that's when he started grooming like uh, kids and getting, getting pictures of young girls that he wanted to have as wives and started like sowing the seed of 
um, polygamy and as soon as they hit puberty they're ready to be a, a wife and the youngest wife that he raped or I should say the youngest girl that he raped was eight years old <gasps> no so he had 24 wives total and about about nine of those were underaged and the youngest being eight years old mm. and you could really the wives were speaking and and on this documentary and the young ones and they were talking about you know you could tell how he hated women just the way that he would abuse them and they all lived in his house and this happened for 10 years so in 2006 one of the wives escaped and you know and they were told like if you escape you're, you were going to hell and you would immediately die. And they all thought like this would be something that would almost would happen instantaneously. Like the instantaneous combustion, like you would instantaneously <laughs> go to hell kind of thing. Cause this is the stuff that, you know, he was feeding them. So he, he was out like all of the shit that he's already done, like all the abuse, all the cult, all the embezzling of, or not embezzling, all of the tax evasion, all of the labor laws broken. I mean, all of this, and he's still living free. And, and it didn't, they didn't really truly go after him again until one of the girls that got out says, oh yeah, he's got photos of girls. So then it came like a child pornography thing, and then they were able to go after him, and he goes on the run again. And this is like 2006. This is, this is like how recent... Like, oh my God. that had happened. So 2006, he's on the run again. He calls fucking CNN and Fox News. And there's, mm. you can listen to him talking to the reporters. And of course, the reporters are like grilling him about like all of this bad, horrible shit that some of the wives who have escaped are saying. And, you know, they make him mad and make him look like an idiot on TV and and the girls that we're talking about in this documentary, they just like, they they loved it because it, it made him look so bad from, you know, because what they, he was doing was so bad, but nobody in his universe believed that, least of all him. And I feel so, like this was like the, the inspiration behind the unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt, like, mm, mm-hmm. <laughs> you right? know? Well, I don't think the guy that kept her was as bad as this fucker man um, unfortunately i think there's more than him that is yeah. based on no yeah. like a bunker oh person. god so they finally they raided his place again where all, he kept all of his wives they didn't find any child porn because he had trained the wives to destroy anything when they got a hint of him being and he's fucking old like really old at this point like one of the things he had to have was like an enlarger for his photographs because he had glaucoma and he couldn't see like the pictures of his wives naked without like God. something to enlarge it. Dude, take a hint. Oh, like no, it's time. It's just, Give it's, up that shit. It's, it's, yeah. So Ugh. ended up, you know, he went on the run. They basically went in and took all the children that were there and put them in family services 
and the parents who were out that actually renounced, I think, renounced the commune and Tony were actually allowed to get their children back. And those who were still believed that he was the prophet, the children went probably to better people, hopefully yeah. to better people. And so the brides get out and the youngest bride that he had that was eight years old that he raped, she got out. And she testified against him, and that caused five other brides to come in and testify against Tony. And they started building up this case, and there was like tw- like 20 to 30 witnesses that actually came in and testified against him. And he was convicted on 10 counts of utter awfulness. And was given an 175 years in jail. And they wanted to make sure that the ministry got shut down. So they set the sum, like, that he had to repay all of his victims so high, like in the billions, that it would basically shut down all of his businesses and they would not be able to function. But there's... You can listen to some of his testimony. And even when he was on CNN and Fox, you could tell how unhinged he was and how what an egomaniac and narcissistic asshole that he had of himself. It's just unreal. There are still followers of Tony. Tony died in prison in 2017. So three years ago, he died. There are still followers. There are still some wives that are housed together. Oh, my God. In 2018, the Tony and Susan Alamo church started surfacing in California and New York. York, And there are still branches of the Tony and Susan Alamo church going today. And that is like... that story is so fucking huge. How have I ne- How have we never, have we heard, never heard about this ministry of evil? And that's one of the things, like, when they introduce this documentary, yeah. like, I highly recommend it. Because it is very eye-opening into the awfulness of these people. The daughter was speaking, and she was like, you take two of the worst people, and you put them together. And it was just, just evil. Wow. It was just evil. Holy shit. Damn, Patrice. I know. We did that today? Yes. People wear these jackets. Yeah. It was on the Michael Jackson's bad cover. He was wearing one of their jackets. Mr. T is wearing one. Sonny Bono is wearing one. Yeah, Brooke Shields wore one. Yeah, the Clintons came by his restaurant. It's like It was like all of these celebrities at that time. Like when he was running this racket. And Dolly Parton, man, I was just like, no. <laughs> it's like, you're not, no! You don't disgrace you can't Dolly. Dolly Parton. You can't have Dolly don't Parton. Don't bring Dolly in this, That's you right. evil people. Oh my gosh. Oh, so, oh, good story, but holy shit, that's awful. Very good. Awful. No, that's, I've been working, like, I watched that. It was a four part series. I watched it this today. Jesus um, Christ. Yeah. It's. It's heavy. That's heavy. And that how, was going to uh, get you down for sure. Shit. How, how. He kind of looks like Jack Nicholson when he gets older. Yeah. Oh, he, no. Yeah. Oh, no. Yeah. Oh, no. He's, he's evil. 
He is evil. I mean, I love Jack Nicholson. This is not to, I'm just saying. But these younger pictures, was she older than him? She was about 10 years older than him. Because yeah. she kind of. Mm-hmm. Yep. Wow. There they are. He looks crazy as fuck. Oh, yeah. Sadistic fucker for sure. Wow. Oh and, but God. it's just amazing yeah. how. How could something like that go on for like 25 like years? For 30 40, years? No, it went for 40 years. It went on for oh 40 God. years. And, I mean, the whole ministry did with both of them. And how so many people can be so brainwashed. I mean, that's, I mean, there's careers studying how stuff like this I happens. Know. But it's fascinating. It's fascinating and just fucking scary. scary. It's the same thing that's happening right now in a big part of our society, I must yeah. say. We'll At talk a bigger about that level. in the after show. <laughs> Drawing some parallels here. <laughs> Well, thank oh, you all so funny, much. Not funny. <laughs> yes, um, thank you so much. And uh, appreciate you listening. We do. And we'll, we'll be back. We'll talk to y'all later. Bye. Bye, guys. Bye. NASCAR. Go NASCAR. Oh, my God. I know, man. What a shocking. If NASCAR can get rid of it, why can't Jacksonville? What the fuck? <laughs> Jesus. I, I almost became like a NASCAR fan just from the fact that they were so quick and decisive about that. Yes. And threw so much shade on that NASCAR driver who was quit. <laughs> Did y'all see that on Twitter? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Oh my God! Awesome. They're like, who are People you? People just, I know. They, <laughs> they were like, okay. We had to look you up, but <laughs> right. I mean, oh. it was tons. He did not want anything. Oh my God! That was like, okay, I may watch NASCAR now. <laughs>